Hello and welcome to Scurvy Companions, the No Sweat Shakespeare podcast. My name is Emily, and today we'll be speaking with Catherine Maness, pronouns she-they, and Beth Dinkova, pronouns she-her, of Shakespeare in the Woods, an unconventional outdoor theater festival in the heart of southern Vermont. New York City actor Catherine started Shakespeare in the Woods in 2019 with the mission to, in their words, provide exceptional quality theater that celebrates the text through exploration of relevant social issues and themes, and to make art that is accessible to all audiences regardless of socioeconomic or geographical standing. This season focuses on the theme of war, and it makes sense that the season starts out with Coriolanus, a tale of how a violent patriarchal culture of war affects a society. Beth Dinkova directs this production. She is a Bulgarian-born director, adapter, and creator who explores alternative realities at the intersection of theater, film, and music in pursuit of social justice. She's a graduate of the MFA directing program at the Yale School of Drama. Today, they'll discuss with us how the themes of Coriolanus are echoed in modern political strife in the U.S. and across the world, how themes of toxic masculinity and patriarchy can be unpacked by a largely female and non-binary cast, how the play awakens class consciousness, and how it urges audiences to examine their own behaviors in their communities and socio-political dynamics. With that, here are Catherine and Beth. Hello, thank you both so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Great. So tell me both about your backgrounds in theater and how you came to Shakespeare in the Woods. Uh, Beth, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, I am originally from a small country in Eastern Europe called Bulgaria. And my love for Shakespeare and for theater started there, even though I've been living and working in the United States for over a decade at this point. But at the time, I think uh, I found a lot of freedom and a lot of hope for the future amongst great political turmoil in my country in the alternative worlds and utopias that we chase when we create theater. So there was something really exciting and compelling to me about this idea that you could propose alternative ways for being and for relating to each other by creating these stage worlds. And uh, in terms of my relationship to Shakespeare, I find that being a foreigner and not a native English speaker was actually an advantage to me because I feel like, you know, while my classmates in college in the United States all felt like Shakespeare was like foreign language, I was like, it's all the foreign language to me, so I don't see any difference really. <laughs> so I've worked on quite a few Shakespeare reimaginings and adaptations that have to do mostly with interrogating systems of power, systems of oppression, systems of othering and exclusion, and trying to figure out how to create a more inclusive world. So that brought me to Shakespeare in the Woods, because at first I just saw this beautiful advertisement <laughs> about doing a season focused on war, and trying to do that in an environment that was trying to do away with some entrenched hierarchies and power structures, and build a diverse company in which everybody could share their talents and their visions as we were working on a cohesive vision. So I uh, was really excited to meet Kate and start talking about Coriolanus because that's a play I 
deeply love that most other people seem to hate. Yes, and definitely everything you talked about is inherent to Coriolanus, so I know that we will get to that. Um, But Catherine, tell me first about the founding of Shakespeare in the Woods and a bit about your background as well. Yeah, my theater background is very much intertwined with my Shakespeare background. Um, I was Mm. exposed, exposed to both when I was 10 or 11 and absolutely fell in love with both. Um, Mm -hmm. Shakespeare has always been sort of my happy place and has uh, made much more sense to me often, more often than not, um, than a lot of contemporary uh, writings and and plays. Um, So I have had this idea for a very long time of uh, how I could bring my love for theater and Shakespeare back to my home in Vermont, um, which I love so very much and and bring all of these wonderful things um, in my life together and um, working from what I don't think is a radical idea at all, Mm -hmm. that um, exceptional provoking theater should be accessible to all regardless of geographical or socioeconomic standing. So then tell me a bit about this year's season. So there are three productions, Coriolanus, Titus Andronicus, and A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, Mm -hmm. and all focusing on the theme of war. So tell me how you came to the idea of that theme. Absolutely, yeah. So so yeah, how I've been approaching um, building seasons as an artistic director is having an overarching theme, um, and then getting to go through the canon and and see what plays jump out at me. I, much like Beth has expressed, I absolutely adore Coriolanus. So Mm. um, it has been very much like on the back burner. I'm like, as soon as it's possible to do this play, we're doing this play. Um, (laughs) And our our first season um, really looked at uh, how society shows up for or fails to show up for women's voices. And mm. so that was our overarching theme then. And then I started was like, I think Coriolanus is, is season two. And so what could that, what could that look like? Um, and I think very much the world uh, climate um, at the time was, uh, was feeling very pressing. Um, something that's very important to me with all of the productions that we do is why does this story need to be told now? Mm. Um, what is the relevancy and what can we do with it that is going to add to the conversation um, or, or create a conversation that's not being had? Um, and so the theme of war is, you know, we, we tend, when we hear war, we tend to think of the, the actual physical, like the battlefield or in our very modern terms, um, drones and a lack of mm-hmm. presence um, between, between people for actual fighting and violence. Um, but I'm also very interested in the verb and how we mm. war with others, whether that is people in our relationships internally with nature. There are so many ways that we can be at war in in our lives. Um, and so I was very interested in unpacking that in totality. And so with Coriolanus at the front, Tigus Andronicus at the end, Midsummer, um, Midsummer obviously is not a play that people necessarily associate with war. 
but mm. there is so much um, turmoil happening between the lovers and uh, this magical fairy world and the humans, nature and humans very much so. Uh, and so I personally think that it is a natural fit in this in this broader examination of of war. Yeah, that's so interesting because I feel like when people think of Shakespeare's war plays, you automatically go to the histories. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was, I love that you're examining it from this different kind of angle with tragedies and comedies rather than just focusing on the history. So I love that. Um, yeah. And for those who may, for those who may not be familiar with Coriolanus, because it's definitely an understudied play and an underperformed play, Beth, do you think you could give us just a little summary of the play? Sure. Uh, Coriolanus, the play, is about, is circling around the Roman war hero Coriolanus, unsurprisingly. And this is very much a play about a world divided, uh, in a world at war. There is a military conflict going on between the Romans and the Volskis. At the same time, there is also great division and dissent inside Rome between the patricians or the wealthy noble people and the citizens, the regular people. And Coriolanus is kind of stuck between them as this character that has been bred and indoctrinated to be a warrior, who eventually, because he cannot bend his, uh, his disposition to compromise and speak the language of the politicians, gets exiled through some machinations from Rome. Then Coriolanus ends up wanting to take revenge on his city and joins in with the Volskian army in order to come back and burn down Rome, but eventually gets convinced by the power of vulnerability by his wife and his mother to spare them and to spare his country mm. and gets killed by his former war ally on the Volskian side as a result. That is a perfect, very short summary. Thank you. And you both mentioned that you love this play. For each of you, what most excites, disturbs, intrigues you about this story? Um, whoever wants to go first. <laughs> so the first time that I read Coriolanus, I was immediately struck by how it does not fit into really into Shakespeare's molds. Um, yeah. We do we don't get we don't get a look inside Coriolanus the character. We don't get soliloquies. We don't get inner monologues. We we um, are very intentionally kept um, at at arm's length, which is mm. very much. Um, I think reflective of the character as a whole uh, and I was absolutely fascinated by that um, and I think that it's exciting to me both as an artistic director and an actor to see a character that just um, tends to get pigeonholed um, mm. but to me is <clears throat> I think I, I personally feel like he's very misunderstood um, for better or for worse. And that that really excites me to sort of dig into why why is it so easy to put these very straightforward labels on this character and what is actually going on internally since we're not given the window that Shakespeare usually uh, gives us in, in all poetic flourish. Um, the thing, the thing I think that disturbs me most is 
is what drew me to it for for this point in time of how unfortunately relevant the themes at work in it are and how um, it is very easily a cautionary tale for the moment that we are in um, as a society right now in 2022. Um, and yeah, it is terrifying in a lot of ways. And um, I think that's that's one of the, the powers of art, right? Is that we can offer warning and examination um, mm -hmm. as, as disturbing as that is and, and yeah. see how see how audiences uh learn and learn and uh examine with us yeah yeah there's a lot there that we will get back to um but beth for you what most intrigues you the first time that i encountered this play was early on in my time in the united states and um something that i have always been wrestling with throughout my career as a director and as a foreigner in a very complex political ecosystem, I think is this question of how, uh, what is the pathway for a person to exercise their power and step into their power fully? And for me, as a woman trying to succeed in a male-dominated profession, trying to prove myself in this new context, something about this character really spoke to me because I recognized the ways in which Coriolanus is partially so unlikable because He's been conditioned by the system that he is in to believe in a very narrow notion of success that is connected to these traditionally masculine concepts of conquest, uh, uh, being closed off to emotions, being invulnerable to emotions, and believing that that is true leadership, that leadership arises from integrity and the willingness to really stand your ground. And... I have discovered since, and Coriolanus discovers tragically too late by the end of the play, that the best way to exercise leadership and actually show up for the people around you and for your community is to let them in, to build connection rather than create divisions between yourself and other people, and to lean into the danger and into the courage that it takes to be vulnerable. This idea of what courage actually looks like is very prominent in the play. So that was my personal connection to the character. But more broadly, I love all the political Shakespeare plays because I find that there's something so interesting about recognizing themes such as class warfare, such as the consequences of war, the, um, the very gendered oppressive dynamics that exist within this particular play and the ways in which we can recognize our world in them or, you know, see a warning sign for what can happen to us if we continue hurtling towards destruction through overconsumption, through exploitation, and don't stop ourselves. So I'm hoping that this can be a moment of uh, awakening. Absolutely. And yeah, so speaking of gender, this production is entirely performed by women and non-binary people. Um, first, Beth, tell me a bit about how you feel that that will feed your vision and the story. And then after that, um, Catherine, tell me about how it feels playing Coriolanus as a non-male identifying person. One of the things that is immediately obvious when you look at this play and you first encounter it is how dripping with uh, machismo this play is, right? How overly masculine in the traditional sense it is. 
it is very much a play about politicians who are male and warriors who are male. And there are only two women in the original cast and one of them barely speaks. So I was really interested in the perspective of the woman who barely speaks, who is Virgilia's wife and one of the characters that ultimately leads to the salvation of Rome and the whole country, right? But in this story, I was interested in examining the perspectives of the people who may survive once uh, once this cycle of war and the cycle of uh, disturbance has kind of run its course, right? Because toxic masculinity can only run rampant for so long, I think, before everybody destroys each other. So I wanted to look at the perspective of the survivors of this violent patriarchal regime and allow them in this group of predominantly female non-binary and I think we've got one male company member to examine what it means to actually look at that violent history, look at this team of war survivors, you know, this group of political refugees, asylum seekers, violent history, and figure out what lessons they can draw in order to not repeat those cycles of consumption uh, and desolation left in its wake. So in this case, it's very much about these survivors stepping into these roles, into these the personas of these characters that are quite different from them in order to examine from the inside what it feels like to wrestle with these impulses that may be considered masculine but aren't foreign to any human being, right? And that there can be something beautiful as well as something terrifying about those impulses. But I'm really excited about creating an extremely... Uh, an extremely terrifying, riotous, violent story that is primarily filled with and performed by really capable actors with great range who don't usually get the opportunity to show those emotions or explore those contradictions. And then Catherine, yes, and playing Coriolanus, um, who's a very hyper-masculine character. Um, how, how do you reckon with that? Yeah, um... It's it's very thrilling. Um, I <laughs> I'm uh, not not super interested as an audience member of seeing um, as seeing roles like Coriolanus traditionally performed anymore. Um, mm. It's it's kind of like see, seeing uh, seeing Julius Caesar right now um, is <laughs> feels feels um, uh, repetitious to me at this point. I'm not sure that, you know, within my mindset of, of why do we need this art now? Um, I'm not sure that we need to see a traditional casting of Coriolanus, uh, when we're tackling this hyper-masculinity. Um, and so I am very intrigued what, um, what parts of this character, the vulnerability like Beth was speaking to earlier and someone who is simultaneously like closed off from his emotions, but so emotional yeah. um, and in so many ways, I think that um, that really drew me in and anger and, and outrage um, in all its hues is an emotion and we tend to 
I think we tend to separate that because emotions are emotions are something that in in its, our society and most Western societies um, we put on female and femme voices. Um, she's being too emotional, whereas like a passionate cis man expressing his anger or outrage is is seen very differently, um, and so that um that really pulls me in and to see what i can i can do as an actor and explore this hyper masculinity and this anger and and righteousness and all of these things um through through a non uh male lens um, yeah. yeah that's such a good point because even politically we do when you know women are running for office we hear oh she'll be too emotional but we never hear the same thing about men who are passionate or angry so again like you were saying this play very much feeds into our contemporary political landscape um so yeah tell me a bit about that what can audiences see in Coriolanus um that they might recognize in the world not just in the U.S. but you know uh, across political turmoil across the, the globe the general um, 2022 landscape. I think that's something that was important to me when thinking about what context to set this story in, is that I think that it's been interesting to observe that even though very devastating acts of war and aggression and conflict have been happening all over the world, certainly in the Middle East, um, for a long time now, I think that it can be easy when you might be looking at these situations from the safety of the United States or Western Europe to forget how personally these situations impact so many people and how close we are actually to something like this coming to our doorstep. I think the conflict in Ukraine was a wake-up call for a lot of the American population that this can also happen in relatively Western, predominantly white countries. And I think that it was unfortunate that it took that kind of an event in order for people to really understand that they might be next. So it's really important to me, I think, when looking at the situation in Coriolanus, which shows uh, an empire that is kind of gasping its last breaths, you know, in our production, especially uh, because of these divisions and these hierarchies and these cycles of violence and trying to cover up that violence that go unacknowledged until, you know, somebody acknowledges them, that these are the signs of that kind of decline, you know, the kind of internal divisions the inability to to find a shared vision for the future that can be inclusive and just is ultimately what leads to the dissolution of countries, not simply conflict from the outside, but also from within. So that threat from the outside as well as the threat from within is something in Coriolanus that I think is very present, which is why in our investigation of a Rome that is very much like the United States, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, in which we do see the consequences of a war-ravaged country and we do see asylum seekers trying to find a way out of the situation and trying to build something different. 
uh, was the direction that we decided to choose. But I'm sure Kate has many other things to highlight about all the things that are resonant. We have those moments of discovery every hour in rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I I feel like um, um, Beth really uh, hit the nail on the head with a lot of that. And, um, you know, some of the the imagery and uh, and settings as we continue to tease those out in rehearsals and, and have this very full experience and world to bring audiences into. I think um, it'll be interesting and exciting to hear from audiences afterwards what what real real parallels jumped out at them. Um, I know when I when I announced the season um, earlier this year, I heard back from so many supporters of ours who who were like oh Coriolanus what a what a timely what a timely piece to have chosen um those are like the deep cut Shakespeare supporters who are who are fully aware of the themes um but I think you know there unfortunately are just there are so many examples within our own society here in the states and globally uh that are um, experiencing or have recently gone through the events of, uh, of this show in particular. Definitely. And then very quickly, we don't have a ton of time left, but I did want to get into talking about uh, class consciousness like you were discussing, Beth. You've um, spoken about that so eloquently in this play and the divisions um, and hierarchies between the leaders and the common people. So talk to me a little bit about how class consciousness and class warfare is present in this play. Yeah, Coriolanus, I feel like, is the Shakespeare play that is the most overtly about class out of all of them. Yeah. And in that we, the first scene in the play takes place in the middle of a riot uh, and tracking the perspectives of a group of citizens that feel like their leaders have failed them in being able to provide for them in all sorts of ways. And then we watch the ways in which the patricians who are, you know, the entrenched political elite try to pacify that, um, that group of people that are seeking their rights. So we see the positive aspects of the ways in which uh, people, especially when organizing themselves in effective ways, in grassroots ways, can incite political change. But at the same time, we also see the ugly underbelly or the opposite side of that coin, where we see the ways in which mob attempts at mob justice and mob violence can undo the fabric of a democracy. So it's fascinating to see that we see both sides of that kind of class conflict that we've encountered both on the right and on the left within our recent American history. And uh, it's fascinating to be able to look at class under a microscope through the lens of this play while maybe pausing a little bit uh, on the specific political party affiliations that we're so used to. I think a lot of the time we think about politics in terms of Democrats versus Republicans in the United States. But this play really invites us to look at the wealthy versus the poor, the people seeking to preserve the status quo versus the people seeking to create change and the ways in which those complex dynamics ultimately yield the 
unstoppable machine of events that kind of leads to the dissolution of these entrenched structures as they exist uh, in a devastating way, but also maybe in a hopeful way where something new can get built there. Thank you. That was the perfect way of putting that. So we're in early rehearsal process now, and performances will take place at the end of August for Coriolanus, and then the whole season will run till about mid-September up in Vermont. How can people find out more about Shakespeare in the Woods, uh, Catherine, if they are interested? Yes, I our website is shakespeareinthewoods.com. Um, we've got all the information there, um, links to purchase tickets right there, the full season schedule. Um, we'll be introducing cast and uh, creative very soon to to the masses um, to <laughs> make sure we're learning about all the wonderfully talented folks who are part of this season. Wonderful. And what about on social media? Uh, what's your Instagram handle, etc.? Yeah, Instagram is also Shakespeare in the Woods. Uh, we're very easy, very straightforward, <laughs> very easy to find. Yeah. And, and we're on Facebook that way as well. Great. All right. So Shakespeare in the Woods, thank you both of you so much for joining us, taking the time to talk about this under talked about play and have a wonderful rest of your day. And I hope we'll have fun in the woods. Yeah, thanks for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Scurvy Companions, the No Sweat Shakespeare podcast. If you're in the Vermont area, Shakespeare in the Woods opens August 24th, and the rest of the season runs through September 11th. You can learn more at shakespeareinthewoodsvtvermont.com. No Sweat Shakespeare is a literary education website devoted to making Shakespeare more accessible. Visit us online at nosweatshakespeare.com to read play summaries, monologue and character analyses, Shakespeare history, and more. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at at nosweatshakespeare and on Twitter at at easyshakespeare. We hope you'll tune in with us again soon. <laughs>